Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then uh, I want to, well, let me do housekeeping first, then we'll pray and jump into the Word. But uh, next week, Dave mentioned next Sunday, following our gathering, uh, we're going to have uh, a barbecue slash kind of reintroduction to potluck. We'll see how the weather's like. They kind of do some inside-outside stuff. But uh, the idea is just to take some time after our Sunday gathering, uh, really try to focus on what we've talked about quite a bit lately, that we are uh, really going to kind of press you to be relational with one another. Try to get back into the habit of having good conversations, being in fellowship and relationship with one another and what a value that is. And so uh, we want to kind of do something special for that. And so uh, I would really invite you to be a part of that. Now, if you if you are real comfortable Saturday evening, that's great. Uh, we, you know, like we've talked about now, we're, we're kind of holding Saturday until the end of May, and then we're going to drop it for a little while anyways and see what happens and, and go back to just Sunday. Uh, next week, it's fine if you decide to come on Sunday. It's fine if you come on Saturday. Uh, I think we kind of know, like planning an event on Sunday, that we're, we're expecting to have a little bit more of like an intimate gathering uh, next Saturday. Honestly, sometimes those are my favorite anyways, and so uh, that's fine. Uh, it's it's going to be a good time. If you want to come on Saturday and then just show up for the food Sunday, that's also fine, right? Like nobody's going to call you out and be like, you skipped church and just came for free food? Uh, maybe somebody's going to, but it's going to be a joke when he says that, and then I'll say that that's not actually what happened, all right? So uh, you're welcome to come at like 1130 and just grab yourself some good barbecue uh, if you come Saturday. Now, if you, you skip Saturday night and you skip Sunday morning and you show up at 1130, I'm going to make you pay for your food. That's the, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe not, but don't do that, okay? The, the whole point is be a part of a church gathering, all right? Uh, so that's, that's the reminder and the invitation, all right? Let me pray, and uh, let's jump into John 16. Heavenly Father, we are we're grateful for tonight. Uh, grateful, as, as we focus tonight, grateful for your Holy Spirit, that you uh, sent your Son to earth, to redeem mankind, and, and then in doing so, even as he left, didn't leave us alone, but sent a helper, one to testify to your great name, one to continue to proclaim who you are, and one to help us in our time of need. And so I pray that uh, as we, we seek to further understand that and grow in that and our desire and our love for you, I uh, pray that you would save, you would continue to save tonight, that you would be uh, building and sanctifying us in the spirit of your truth. Help us with it by the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, John 16, let me, let me do a little background, get you caught up to where we're at with this. Uh, we've now spent a few weeks, uh, in fact, the first half of this sermon really is kind of the conclusion or the continuation of last week's sermon in John 15, uh, which is a continuation of one discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples that spans a pretty significant amount of time. Uh, so he has sat down with them the final week of his life in an upper room in Jerusalem. Jesus knows that he is about to be arrested. He's about to go to the cross and that will be the end of his earthly ministry before he is resurrected from the dead, uh, spends a little bit of time with the disciples and then ascends into heaven. And so in this, 
Uh, we said last week that primary, primarily his two, like in an earthly sense, objectives anyways, are to comfort and instruct his disciples. And so over and over again, he's giving both words of comfort, like do not let your heart be troubled, uh, because in this he wants them to understand that though he leaves, it'll be okay. And secondly, uh, he wants them then out of this comfort to be instructed in what they are to do after he leaves. Namely, we said last week that that ends in the end of John 15, that they would be ones who would testify to who he is. And so comfort and instruction become really the the primary things from John 13 all the way carrying through John 16 that you're going to see over and over again in Jesus's interaction with his disciples. Now, the thing about that is, right, comfort and instruction are pretty intertwined because sometimes uh, the very idea of comforting words are instructive in their nature. In fact, that's what Jesus uses over and over again. Don't let your heart be troubled, right? Or we said, let uh, your joy be made full. Those are words of comfort to his disciples, but they're also telling them to do something, right? It's, it's instructive to say Don't let your heart be troubled or let your joy be full. And vice versa, it is instructive to uh, your comfort as well as Jesus is giving some instruction as to what's going to happen to them. By its very nature, it becomes a source of comfort and a source of satisfaction even if that instruction is noting that there's going to be difficulties ahead. And so uh, what we looked at last week was in this kind of broad premise, Jesus says this, uh, don't worry about the world hating you. And, and so we kind of had to spend some time going, wait a second, how would comfort match the world's going to hate you? Right? That doesn't sound very comforting on the surface. In fact, the, the first kind of inclination for us ought to be to sort of recoil at that and go, well, I don't, you know, I kind of don't want the world to hate me. I, right? Amen? You with me tonight? So, so out of that, uh, here's, here's what happens. Jesus continues this. So we looked at some of the ways last week that we are honoring Jesus and the ways that we can find encouragement even if, like the majority of believers throughout the history of mankind, we would see opposition in and within the world and the world even hating you as a believer, right? And so then watch how he continues in John 16, all right? So let's read the first four verses, talk about why this has this kind of comforting instruction to it, and then We'll spend the rest of our time looking at what Jesus says is going to equip us to deal with that. All right, so look at this. Verse 1, chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. Now, that word stumbling, uh, in, in Greek, it literally meant the stick that falls when a trap ensnares, right? So uh, think about it. What, what he's saying is that you would be kept from getting caught in a trap, getting ensnared by the things that are going to happen to you. Why? Well, he's going to tell you what things are going to happen to you. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me, 
But these things I have spoken to you so that when their, their hour comes, you may remember that I told you them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Uh, so, so a lot of heavy stuff in here, but here's essentially what Jesus has said. I want to give you words of comfort and instruction to keep you from stumbling because what's about to happen to you is not going to be something you will receive well and with gladness. In fact, what's likely to happen to you is they will kick you out, send you out of the synagogue. Now, that's, that's more consequential than what we might know uh, in our day and age because it doesn't translate one-to-one of being kicked out of the church. In fact, in that time, if you're kicked out of the synagogue, you were divorced from social, economic, family connections. You were not allowed to associate with the Jewish community in your entire town, which was the only community in your town. And so it had devastating consequences. Not only that, he says, even above and beyond that, anyone at some point in time is going to come who kills you and think that they are offering service to God. And so again, kind of out of this thing that we said last week, you have to deal with this fact that Jesus, by his desire to give us comfort in his going, is saying, I'm telling you these things because I used to be with you and I'm about to leave, right? And so on the surface, that doesn't sound great. Amen? In fact, um, I think I think it helps to think of it this way. Uh, do you, you ever realize, like, even in regular things in your life, if you know that something ahead of you is going to be bad, it it has a tendency to to take some of that edge off, as opposed to uh, being surprised by it. Amen. Right. Like, uh, so so the example I, I was thinking of a couple years ago, I got I got suckered into. Uh, running a marathon, which is is horrible. Let, let me just tell you, here's here's the like I got advice about how to do it. Let me just tell you the advice that you actually should take. Don't do it. It's terrible. It's I know some of you are like, don't worry about that. <laughs> Not even on the on the plate. Okay. Not even thinking about that. Uh, I was was too dumb to know that at the time. So yeah, sure, I'll try it. You know, uh, here here was the thing that consistently consistently. I heard again and again in training from anybody who had run a marathon who I don't think is as honest as I am because they're like, oh yeah, you can do it, it'll be great. I'm telling you beforehand, don't do it. You don't need to try it. It's not great. You know the first person that ever did that died, by the way. That's like the myth of it is the guy was in Greece and he ran from one city to the next and it was 26.2 miles and he was going to tell everybody about some victory and then at the end he fell over and just died. So just noting that, right? You don't want to do it. However, all of these people, they began to tell me this, uh, you and your training are never going to, so you never run 26.2 miles in practice, uh, because if that was the case, you'd never run the race, right? If I, if I did it in practice, don't sign me up. I don't need to do it again. I already did it, right? So in practice, you never get past 20 miles. That's the longest you run, uh, as if that's not a long time. That was horrible, Running 20 miles, maybe want to run the marathon even less. However, completed that, felt like, okay, I'm ready to go. And then over and over again, people who'd run a marathon would say, hey, listen, you need to understand this. You need to know this is going to happen. When you get somewhere in that like 21, 22 range, somewhere in there, you're going to hit a wall. And you're going to think, I'm going to die right now. 
you're not. You're going to think it, but you're not going to die. I'm thinking, well, you did. I told them the story, right? Like, you did hear about the guy, the first guy that ever ran. He did die. I'm not, I, I could die. They're like, no, no, no. You're not going to die. You need to remember. You're going to hit this wall. And I'm like, why is it so? Here's, here's why it's so important, right? Because I got to mile 20 that day of the race, and I actually was feeling like kind of good. And so I thought, well, I'll just speed up. You know, I'm feeling good. And I'm passing people, and I'm feeling even better about myself. And I'm like, man, this is going to be no problem. And, and I'm telling you, like, the, the little sign that said 21 on it, I took like two steps past that and like this. It just, boom. And, and when they said hit a wall, it's not, they're not, it's not a metaphor, right? It was like I ran into a wall. I just, all of a sudden, I couldn't move. My legs are dead. I was like, oh, man, this is it. I am going to die, right? And what I'm remembering is that guy in the story that ran to the city of Marathon and fell over and died. That's what, I'm like, this is me. Now I'm going to die. Like, I'm sure that they've got people here that are going to put me in an ambulance in a minute and hopefully, like, keep me alive but, like, I hope that they see me fall over in just a second because it's done. And then here's the second thought. Like, as you have a chance to kind of breathe and enough oxygen hits your brain, you go, oh, yeah, they told me this was going to happen. They told me again and again and again. They, they encouraged me. They comforted me in this pain. Now, I'll tell you the next, like, 45 minutes were as bad of a time as I've ever had in my entire life. Although the hour after that was pretty great. And then we went to IHOP. I ate two full meals there. That was also pretty great. And so, uh, you know, highs and lows. Uh, anyways, here's, here's the point though, right? Even in the most horrible experiences that you can imagine and have in your life, there is a source of intense comfort to know that someone else has done it first and they'll walk alongside you and they'll tell you what you can expect, and it's not an unknown, and it's not a surprise to you. Amen? And, and in that, even, even in the horrifying, even in the difficult times, it has this way of kind of taking the edge off of it, does it not? Right? Uh, and think about, like, the marathon is silly, right? But think about cancer. Or, or think about having a baby. Or think about any number of scary and unknown and horrific experiences. Having a baby is not a horrific experience. Amen? Right? It's great. It's glorious. Uh, <laughs> but, but again, in these things, to have someone come alongside you and say, I know what's going to happen. I know how this is going to happen. And you need to trust me because I am ahead of you. I'm before you in this ought to be remarkably comforting. This is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's going, I know. I'm speaking these things to you, not to keep you out of the pain that you're about to experience, but so that you would remember in these things, anything that could happen to you on this earth, that I haven't lost control of this, that I know everything about this. In fact, that's one of the most consistent things that John's going to return to again and again and again in his gospel, is that Jesus was consistently saying things about what was going to happen as if it had already happened. He knew everything 
everything that was in front of him. It starts early on, right? In John chapter 2, Jesus is in the temple, and he looks at all these religious leaders, and what's he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll do what? I'll raise it up, right? And, And it says John remembers after he's resurrected that he said these things, and he was talking about the temple that was his body. That over and over again, Jesus has done this. Consistently throughout his ministry with the disciples, Jesus does this. He says, this is what's going to happen, right? Uh, You imagine just walking along with a guy who always seems to know the future, right? Not only that, he's called many of them out, telling them where they were at when he called them. And so in all of this, Jesus means not to change our circumstances or to kind of manipulate or pervert the gospel like so many do today. He's not calling you to only experience good and healthy and fun and happy things in this world, but rather that he means to send us comfort to say, listen, don't stumble. Know that even when pain comes, even when problems arise, that I know these things and you aren't separated from my love even though I am no longer going to be with you, right? That's what he says in verse 4. These things I didn't say to you at the beginning because I was with you. You you didn't need to be warned of all this stuff. You didn't need to be instructed and comforted because I was right there alongside you. However, now things have begun to change. And so Jesus does this. He continues on to talk about what we have as the most tangible help and source of comfort in our lives, starting in verse 5. Read along with me, and then let's chat about it, because uh, part 2, and really this this sermon kind of, part 1 just sort of takes all of last week and begins to summarize it in a practical sense, and then part 2 is almost an entirely disconnected nature, but it's the how do we do this? How, how do we keep ourselves from stumbling? How do we walk in the comfort of Christ as he goes to the cross, as he ascends into heaven, as he's no longer with us? Look what he says. But now, I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, and sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is too your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now let's, let's pause there because Jesus just made a really bold claim to some guys who have just invested the fullness of three years of their life, risked everything to walk along with him. And he says, I'm leaving. He even notes that out of this, though he is comforting them, sorrow has filled their hearts. This is a turbulent time in this upper discourse and upper room uh, in Jerusalem before Jesus heads to the cross. And in this, he says, listen, I know that sorrow has filled your heart. And yet, listen, it is to your advantage that I go. For if I don't go, the helper, he's referring to the Holy Spirit there. We'll talk about that in a second. But it will not come. It's ultimately to your benefit that I leave this ministry in this earth and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, the thing about this is, uh, I think even for us today, and, and certainly this would have been perhaps even more true for the disciples who were walking with Jesus for the better part of three years. Our temptation even today is to 
uh, think this is just wrong. Right? Especially if you're someone who here has a lot of your struggles in faith. Right? Like some, some people deal with different things, but if you struggle to believe and you struggle to be someone who can really just go, oh man, like I just wish I could believe all of the things the Bible said, but sometimes I doubt, right? Uh, here's, here's the thing. Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to be gone, and you're not going to see me anymore, and that's to your advantage, on the surface seems like a really silly thing, right? Because, because here's what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to think, man, I struggle to always trust the Lord at work in my life right now, but if there was a guy walking around who occasionally was walking on the water, and if there was a guy uh, who was coming to all of the events and the parties, and occasionally he wasn't bringing the wine, he was making the wine, and and if there was a guy who uh, was showing up at the funerals, and occasionally he was uh, making them not a funeral anymore, right? I would have a tendency to be drawn to that. Amen? It's just natural in our lives to think, if I saw that, if I saw that, then I would know. Here's here's the thing that's so crazy about that, though. In Jesus' ministry, there's, there's a few different groups of people. There's some that are following him. There's some that are asking questions about what he's doing. And then there's some who over and over and over again witness Jesus doing these things. And each time they get back together in their little group and they begin to plot for a way to kill him because they're worried that he's going to change the dynamic of what they have at that very moment. And so... Here's, here's what happens. In fact, Paul says it this way. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's, Paul's describing what Jesus does. And he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. And then he says it this way. For we are a fragrance. Now, he's talking about the church. Those of us who know Jesus are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved And among those who are perishing, to one, the aroma from death to death, and to the other, an aroma from life to life. And so what Jesus does as he walks in the earth is the same thing that will happen as people hear the testimony of him after he is gone, which is some believe and he becomes a fragrant aroma from life unto life, and some reject and he becomes an aroma of death unto death, and it just accelerates that entire process. Watch how the Holy Spirit is going to do this. Jesus is going to explain what this is going to look like. Start with me in verse 8. What's the Holy Spirit do? And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And what's the role of the Holy Spirit? In short, it's this, to proclaim Jesus. The, the Holy Spirit comes as a part of the Godhead, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, as the response and following Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into the world in a role of making known Jesus. That's the most simplistic definition of the role or the purpose of the Holy Spirit in its 
his ministry on the earth is to proclaim Jesus. Look at how Jesus is explaining it here concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is the gospel that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of, will teach them the gospel. Now, concerning sin, that, that word there, sin, is used in its singular sense. What sin is he talking about? Well, look at verse 10. Verse, verse 9, excuse me. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So you might say that the Holy Spirit's role concerning sin is ultimately a role to concern people about Jesus. What are you going to do about Jesus? In fact, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, actually, uh, the Jesus is talking about the role of the Holy Spirit and says there's only one sin that won't ever be forgiven. Anybody, you know this, you're familiar with this, the unforgivable sin? All right, well, I'll teach you. So in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this, that there is sins that will be forgiven and a sin that will not be forgiven. Now, on the surface, that sounds contrary to the gospel message, does it not? Right? Because, because the gospel message is the forgiveness of all of our sins. However, listen to how Jesus says this. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. That's Matthew 12, 31 through 33. In that, Jesus is going, hey, listen, there is a sin that can't be forgiven. It's to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit or to deny the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, think about how this connects to the gospel. What's the work of the Holy Spirit? To convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, as in believing in Jesus or the sin of not believing in Jesus. And so ultimately what Jesus is saying about this is the only thing, again, the only thing that will keep us from him is unbelief. That you and I not having faith in Christ is ultimately what separates us from Christ. Not any work that we do in our own selves, but rather whether or not we have trusted him. And so in this, the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world, to tell the world about Christ and what it means to believe or not believe in him. Concerning righteousness, look at verse 10. He says this, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. So what's the Holy Spirit teaching us about righteousness? That Jesus Christ was righteousness. He says, when I'm here, you have me to know what is righteousness. And when I go to the Father and you no longer see me, the Holy Spirit comes and tells you what is holy and righteous and true, namely exemplified in the perfect sinless life of Jesus. And then he says this, and concerning judgment. And in verse 11, he defines that, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. He's talking about Satan there. and He's speaking. Think about this. This is so, I think this is so cool. Again, as we talk about Jesus comforting. Jesus is saying, listen, the testimony of the Holy Spirit is a gospel testimony. It's the testimony that you would believe in Christ, that that is the 
fullness of faith and the forgiveness of sin. And the only sin that won't be forgiven is you not believing in him. That you would find righteousness, not in your own workings, but in Jesus as the source of perfect righteousness. And in judgment, that you would know that there is judgment if you continue in your sin. And yet... Jesus, speaking in the past tense about something that's going to happen in the future, says, listen, it's already been won. The ruler of this world has been judged. I've already claimed the victory on the cross for you. That the good news of Jesus is proclaimed by the Holy Spirit, is convicting the world as the whole that you and I are meant to know Jesus, that he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, two more things about it that I think ought to comfort us, and then we'll finish with with one illustration of how you see this play itself out. He says, I have have many more things to say to you. This is verse 12 of John 16. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? To proclaim Jesus and to guide us into all truth. Now, how are these connected? Well, because remember what we said on Easter Sunday, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus in himself exemplifies truth. John's going to begin his gospel this way, noting that we saw him as the only begotten son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That ultimately, anything that is real, anything that is substantive, anything that is true will be found through Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, what the Holy Spirit comes to do is empower those who have believed to know Christ, to know the truth, and to be continuously guided in Him. Here's here's where it ties back to what we said before. Even in the worst of times, you and I draw comfort in the fact that though the physical, walking, talking Jesus doesn't stand beside you today, that upon his ascension into heaven and shortly thereafter on the day of Pentecost, he sends down a helper, the Holy Spirit, who guides us. In fact, the Bible says that no longer is there a need for the physical temple in Jerusalem because you and I, if we know Christ, are the temple of God. That the Holy Spirit indwells us. That it lives inside of us, moving us, convicting us, teaching us, guiding us into what is true. So that you and I might know what we ought to do and when we ought to do it. That what we ought to decide, how we ought to think, how we ought to move. Now, and that's not like segregated from the Scripture, right? Because who wrote the Scripture? Come on. God did, right? And, and what's the Holy Spirit? He's God. So, so anytime he's guiding you, he's going to guide you in accordance to the Scripture. But here's the thing that's so crazy about that. The Scripture is foolishness to those who are perishing. And yet, to us, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. 
And so what's at work in you as you read the Scripture is the Holy Spirit guiding you into the truth, revealing the Scripture to you so that you might know what God is doing within your life. He will guide you into truth. And then, and then he continues on, he says this. Last one, and then, and then let's just talk about how this begins to look in our lives. Verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All the things the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit, as, as the third part of the Trinity, as the person of God, he is disclosing the truth of Jesus, glorifying the name of Jesus. That when, when Jesus says, you and I are meant to be what we closed last week with, people who would testify of my name, that you do so not in your own ability, but you do so through the Holy Spirit who discloses him to the world, convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, judgment, concerning Jesus. That all that we do, we do in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's finish with this. Why is this so massively comforting? Or, or why should it be? Right? Because this was what he said in response to sorrow has filled your heart. And then goes on to explain to them that a helper is coming. Here's, here's why. Because in its power, in his authority, in his ability, the Holy Spirit empowers us in such a way that is transformational unlike anything of this world. It supersedes any help, self-help book. It supersedes any plans or intentions or even goodwill within ourselves. Here's, here's how you see it. Uh, Jesus in this upper room, just before he's going to the cross, with all of his disciples that will uh, continue to follow him. Judas has left. The rest of them sitting there, the other 11, are now terrified. They're broken. They're upset. They're confused. Their fullness of expectation was that Jesus here in Jerusalem was going to establish the kingdom of Jews now. He was going to drive out Rome. The temple was going to be restored to its fullness the way it should. And Jesus was going to sit as king over the nation of Israel. Which, in particular, would have been great for the 11 people who have been with him for the last three years. Because if you are the 11 friends of the king, life is pretty good. And now he started to say things like, I'm going to leave. And the world's going to hate you. And there's going to come a day where everyone who kills you is going to think that they offer service to God. And so in this sorrow, uh, they're lost. Not only that, but in the days to come, here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to be arrested. And uh, Peter is going to try to fight and pull out a sword. And he's going to cut a guy's ear off. And Jesus is going to go put the sword away. We're not doing that. 
That's not what I came for. He's going to fix the guy's ear, and then he's going to voluntarily go to the cross. He's going to not speak a word of his own defense while he is being uh, accused falsely. And all 11 of those disciples are going to scatter and leave in fear. And in their cowardice, none of them are around. In fact, Peter, the one who uh, pulls out said sword, and the one who boastfully, just a couple chapters earlier, said, hey, all these other chumps might leave, but I'm not going anywhere. I'll be here to the death, okay? And Jesus looks at him and goes, hey, before morning, you're not only going to deny me once, three times, bud. And Peter does. And he leaves and he weeps bitterly, realizing what he's done. And you have 11 men broken, ashamed, and lost trying to come to grips with the fact that the last three years of their life seems like a waste, trying to process and think through these words that Jesus has given him, given them. And then here's what happens. You flip a couple pages. The book of Acts begins with these 11 disciples and about 10 times that many people, in fact, about 120 of them, just waiting in Jerusalem. Just, just waiting for what Jesus said. Now, there's this kind of tinge of hope that has arrived because uh, Jesus didn't stay dead, but he was resurrected, and they have heard now him say, wait, because the Holy Spirit, that helper that I promised you, he's coming, and with him you will receive power, power to be my witnesses. And in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit arrives in the disciples, and here's, here's what happens. They receive power. And, and they receive the Spirit that gives them the ability to be guided in truth, gives them the words to convict the world concerning sin and judgment and righteousness, and it takes fire. And these 11 guys who were hiding on the night of the cross and trying to deal with the idea that their Savior has been lost are now responsible for the most transformational thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. In Acts chapter 2, some thousand, 3,000 people come to know Christ. They get saved that day. Just a few days later, another 5,000 come to get saved. Peter and John, these guys who were kind of cowering and not really sure what was going to happen, all of a sudden are boldly proclaiming the gospel despite going to prison for it. As it goes on, chapter after chapter after chapter, those 11 guys, 10 of them, save the one who wrote this gospel account, end up martyred simply because of this. Because they won't recant the testimony that they know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What happened to them? Well, a helper came. And it was to their advantage, as it is to ours, that Jesus promises you, that the Bible promises you, that you, you place your faith in him, and, and it just doesn't matter what comes in this world. It doesn't matter what things befall you. It doesn't matter what obstacles are ahead 
you and I can take heart and know that it is to our advantage that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was resurrected from the dead, and then he sent a helper, the spirit of truth, to come and to guide us into all truth and ultimately to do what? To glorify the name of Jesus for the sake of and the glory of God at its core. Why don't you pray with me? And then we'll sing one more song before we close tonight. Father God, we're, uh, we're, we're grateful. I think, uh, I think sometimes we're confused or hesitant or uh, just ambiguous about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It seems so so abstract and so uh, kind of ethereal. We, we just, sometimes we just don't seem like we get it very well. Not only that, but for many of us, we've, we've seen it uh, abused in so many wild ways that uh, we fear in talking about walking and what it looks like to be guided by your spirit. Here's my, here's my prayer tonight. That you would help us remember that you would keep us from stumbling because we would know that in us lives your spirit, that it, that it exists to help us. To help us do what? To help us glorify you, that we would speak the truth concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment, that you would guide us into all truth and that ultimately it would glorify your name. Let us be a people of courage and power. Let us be a people who in all things proclaim you by the work of your spirit within us. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's just stand and sing one more song with us.